Mark 11, 12 to 33. Another weird incident with Jesus. So last week we looked at the triumphal entry and in verse 12, the next day when they went out from Bethany, he, Jesus, was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find out if there was anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. They came to Jerusalem and he went into the temple and began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. He was teaching them, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. The chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to kill him for they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. And Whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. Early in the morning, as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. And then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. Jesus replied to them, have faith in God. Truly, I tell you, if anyone see, says to this mountain, be lifted up, and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. And therefore I tell you, everything you pray and ask for, believe that you have received, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. They came again to Jerusalem. As he was walking in the temple, the chief priests the scribes and the elders came and asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was John's baptism from heaven or of human origin? Answer me. They discussed it among themselves. Well, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe him? And if we say of human origin, well, they were afraid of the crowd because everyone thought that John was truly a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Well, you've probably seen on the news or maybe in real life uh, performance art, which is where someone will do something often outrageous uh, to gain attention and to make a point. So uh, one group you might be familiar with is Extinction Rebellion, um, uh, environmental movement. Uh, they've been particularly prominent in recent years, not just for disrupting traffic, which they do a lot of, but also some very striking performative acts. Going back a few decades to the Vietnam War, one art teacher told his students to dance naked outside the US Congress uh, as a political protest. And these acts are deliberately provocative uh, and they're often used to spark awareness and debate over important topics. You know, the Bible is full of performance artists. We call them prophets. Ezekiel lay on his side for over a year and cooked his food food over his own dung as a sign of judgment on Israel. 
And Isaiah wandered around naked for three years while he delivered his prophecies. These are shocking and confronting acts, yeah? If you had been there, I know if I had been there, guaranteed we would have been offended. And that was the point. Well, the cursing of the fig tree is one of Jesus' more perplexing acts. Uh, it says he was hungry and went looking for something to eat so on the fig tree, even though it wasn't fig season. Now, you would have thought Jesus would know that, right? And on the surface of it, does this look like Jesus is having a divine hissy fit? Didn't get what he wanted? Well, of course, as we look at the rest of life, Jesus' life, we know that's ridiculous. But his action makes sense when we understand that Jesus is prophetically performing a symbolic act. It's performance art, we might call it today, but with a religious slant to it. So why? What does it mean? Well, the fig tree was actually a symbol for Israel. And in the Old Testament, in Hosea, which one do I press? Have I got? There we go. Hosea chapter 9, verse 10. Um, it likens Israel to a fruitful and delicious fig tree. I discovered Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your ancestors like the first fruit of the fig tree in its first season. Beautiful image God had of Israel, but Israel was a disappointment. Jeremiah says, how can you claim we are wise? The law of the Lord is with us. In fact, the lying pen of scribes has produced falsehood. The wise will be put to shame. They will be dismayed and snared. They have rejected the word of the Lord. So that wisdom, so what wisdom do they really have? When I punish them, they will collapse, says the Lord. I will gather them and bring them to an end. This is the Lord's declaration. There will be no grapes on the vine, no figs on the fig tree, and even the leaf will wither. Whatever I have given them will be lost to them. Ouch. Israel, God's fig tree, would bear no fruit. Its prosperity and its people would be taken away. Now, if you're familiar with Jesus' relationship with the religious leaders, those words uttered by Jeremiah centuries early sound very relevant to the New Testament scene, don't they? And Jesus was pronouncing the same judgment on the religious establishment of his day as Jeremiah had those centuries earlier. So that is the basic meaning of the withering of the fig tree. But of course, there's more to this story and Mark highlights it for us by wrapping the account of Jesus cursing the fig tree around the account of Jesus driving out the money changers and traders in the temple. Now, the temple had for a long time allowed money changers in the general precincts because let's face it, you couldn't have people donating the filthy Roman coin to the temple, could you? In fairness, also, the Old Testament did specify sacred coinage, temple coinage. Now, this uh, trade took place in a giant courtyard. So what we have on the screen is a picture, uh, a depiction of the temple. Um, and you'll see around the very outside, the walls uh, and the colonnades, Solomon's colonnade, 
colonnade is the uh, orange roof building. And then there's a courtyard around the edges and a wall, you see, and then more courtyard and then the actual precincts of the temple. So it becomes more and more holy the closer you get to the actual massive giant temple, which was absolutely impressive, gold-plated, all sorts of stuff. But that courtyard between Solomon's colonnade and the outside walls and the inner wall was called the Court of the Gentiles. It wasn't by the religious leaders considered part of the sort of sacred space of the temple. It was part of the temple precincts, but it wasn't sacred space. And so the Gentiles could go there, but no further. Inside that wall was the court of the women, and then there's the court of the men, and so it goes. But you had to be Jewish to get in there. And so that was a place where the Gentiles, God-fearing Gentiles, could get somewhat close to God. Trading coins had long been established there. Trading animals in the temple courtyard was actually a new phenomenon. So when people came to Jerusalem for Passover, big, you know, they had to sacrifice animals and stuff. If you're coming from a long way, it's just not um, practical to bring your animals. And the Old Testament actually makes uh, allowance for people to purchase animals in Jerusalem and sacrifice them and eat them there. And so this trade in animals had been set up on the Mount of Olives for decades or perhaps centuries. And so people could legitimately go there, buy their animals, take them to the temple to be slaughtered. The high priest Caiaphas apparently decided he, because the Sanhedrin, the actual council, was uh, irresponsible for that. The high priest Caiaphas decided he wanted a little bit of the action and set something up in competition to the legitimate trade in the temple. And so it's this that Jesus really starts to object to. It was an affront to God-fearing Gentiles. Apparently, it was an affront to God himself. And so Jesus quoted verses from Isaiah and Jeremiah and put them together when he said, Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. And so Jesus lays into them. Now, there's no doubt Jesus would have been really angry and irate, in fact. But this is not a rash act. This was deliberate, dangerous, subversive, and again, prophetic. It wouldn't have made a difference. They would have been back there as soon as Jesus turned around. But it was a pronouncement of judgment on the temple and the religious system. Okay, so that's the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple come together. You see that? Jesus is pronouncing judgment through cursing the fig tree, a symbol of Israel, and then he goes into the temple and pronounces judgment on that. Then we're just going to skip past uh, his teaching on prayer. We'll come back to that. But then we see this interaction with the religious leaders, which is kind of interesting. Have I got... Thank you. And Jesus asks, who is John? Or the, uh, the, the Pharisees ask Jesus by what authority he does it. And he says, well, who's John the Baptist? Uh, it's, it's a very clever interplay with Jesus. The Pharisees are trying to get Jesus to uh, commit what they would have thought was blasphemy by saying he's come from God. And Jesus is going to tell them this in just a few days when he's crucified, but it's not quite time yet. And he knows that they're not going to give him a straight answer. 
And you know what he does in, in this little interplay? He actually gets them to kind of disqualify themselves as legitimate leaders. You see, the religious leaders, you would have thought, would have a handle on what a true and a false prophet is, right? Jesus is asking them basically, is John Dinkum, is he from God? This, this is the implication. Is he a true prophet or a false prophet? Well, they think he's a false prophet, but they can't say that because they're chicken of the crowd. And so when they come back with this answer, we don't know, these people are religious leaders. This is their job to know. There are questions you would come to me with and you would expect me to know the answer to, right? Now, we don't have all the answers. Sometimes we need time to process. Now, I think that's fine. At least I hope it's fine. But we need to do so with a little bit of humility, right? These guys don't have humility. And so with their really feigned ignorance, their we don't know sort of condemns them as a legitimate leadership and disqualifies them as leading God's people. And so do you see what's going on here? Jesus curses the fig tree, pronounces judgment on this whole religious establishment on Israel, symbolically purifies the temple, comes back, the fig tree is withered after purifying the temple, teaches on prayer, which we're about to come to, and then the religious leaders sort of disqualify themselves in this by revealing their own spiritual bankruptcy. So what we see is Jesus is basically declaring the old order is passing away. So we've been skirting around Jesus' teaching on prayer because I wanted to save the best for last. He's pronounced judgment on the old order. It's passing away, but in a few days, he's going to establish a new order through his death and resurrection. See, the temple in Jerusalem will no longer be God's house of prayer as it was originally established. That role is going to change to a new temple, the worldwide church of God. And so Jesus promises that when we ask in faith, we can move this mountain, he says. So what mountain is Jesus talking about? Well, we could generalize it and just say the obstacles in life, the mountains we face, and that might be legitimate. Some people think maybe he's talking about the Temple Mount since he's been declaring judgment on that. But he probably actually said this to his disciples when he was on the Mount of Olives. When you apparently stood on the Mount of Olives on a clear day, you could see all the way to the Dead Sea. And Jesus says, if you have faith, you can tell this mountain to be cast into the sea as they're looking at it and it will happen. And if that's the case, it calls to mind then another prophecy from Zechariah chapter 14. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. The Mount of Olives will be split in half from east to west, forming a huge valley so that half the mountain will, be move, will move to the north and half to the south. Hmm, what's going on there? We don't want to take it too literally. Look at what comes next. On that day, there will be no light. The sunlight and moonlight will diminish. It will be a unique day 
known only to the Lord without day or night, but there will be light at evening. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it toward the Eastern Sea, that's the Dead Sea, and the other half toward the Western Sea, that's the Mediterranean, in summer and winter alike. On that day, the Lord will become king over the whole earth, the Lord alone and his name alone. Now think about that a little bit. Does that sound familiar if you know the Bible story? A day with no light, like the day Jesus died, when darkness covered the earth. A day when the living water of the gospel started to flow out of Jerusalem when Jesus was crucified. The day Jesus was crowned king on his throne made of a cross. So the promise of mountain-moving prayer was an invitation to the mission of the gospel. Jesus called his disciples to faith-filled prayer and his promises to us as well as to them. Now, we do need to take seriously this promise that if we believe we have received what we ask, then we'll receive it. Now, that's really challenging. I don't know about you. I find that really challenging. But there is also an important context here. The first act of believing prayer Jesus invites us into is establishing his new order, his kingdom come to earth. The mountains of the old ways uh, was an obstacle that needed to be thrown into the sea so the living water of the gospel could flow out. There are still obstacles, still mountains to that living water in the lives of people around us, in our families, our communities. We just were hearing about people from Burma. People live under the old order. And Jesus calls us to a faith that will see the kingdom of God established in their hearts, in our homes, and in our communities. This is a faith for revival to break out in our lives and in our city. This is a faith to move mountains of unbelief, mountains of idolatry and of materialism and of self, as well as any other mountains that stand in the way. And evidently, also the biggest mountain, unforgiveness. It's interesting that Jesus sort of ends it. If you forgive anyone, your heavenly Father will forgive you. If we're going to see mountains moved and prayers answered and living water flowing, we have to understand that in this new order, we are the temple of God. Each of us is a living stone slotted into that temple which is no longer a building, but people. And what does that mean? That temple is only as strong as the unity of its people. Linked arm to arm, very hard to break up a group. If we all huddle and wrap up in ourselves, very easy to take it out. The gospel is, we need to remember, a gospel of grace and a gospel of forgiveness. And so you and I can only be gospel people insofar as we walk in grace and forgiveness. Now that means 
receiving God's grace and forgiveness for ourselves. Some people battle with that. But it also means passing it on to others. And let me tell you something. The only people who need grace and forgiveness in your life are the people you don't like, are the people who offend you, are the people who you think are wicked. And they probably are. But they're the people who need grace and forgiveness. They're the people Jesus died for. And so this means not only preaching it, like I get to do, but living it, which is much, much harder. It's a supernatural act. It takes a miracle. We need the work of God in our lives to help us do that. And that sort of community, don't you think, is going to move mountains and see prayers answered because it understands the heart of God. The religious leaders of Jesus' day loved their temple. And it really was magnificent. They loved their power. They loved what they thought was their position before God, but it was all dust. They'd forgotten that the heart of God was not only for them as religious people, not only for them as Israel, but for the nations and the outcasts as well. And they considered Gentiles outcasts from God. Jesus pronounced an end to the temple system and instituted a new one, the temple of his people. It had been stone, but now it's flesh and blood, but its purposes remain the same, to be a house of prayer for all nations. So question for us this morning is, are we that house of prayer? Are we a house full of faith, believing for those mountains to be cast into the sea? Are we a house full of grace and forgiveness, walking freely and lightly in the grace of the gospel, the love of the Father towards one another? And are we a place where the outcast can come and find God? Well, I know that's this church's heart. So my question for us is how can we grow more and more deeply in that? Let's pray. Lot in this story this morning, Father. But help us just to come back to this simple, glorious truth that on the cross Jesus changed everything. On the cross he was crowned king. We look forward to the day when he comes again and consummates his kingdom but help us to live as kingdom people in the in-between time with faith and grace and understanding the great privilege it is to be what you have made us. Help us to be a temple where people can come and meet God. In Jesus' name, amen.